electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Georgia Boza with John Fort and Carl Quintanilla. Today, UBS upgrades tech after valuations crater to start the year. P firms have been buyers. Should you be as well? Then Microsoft bulls beware. Bear calls on MSFT, Netflix, and Cisco. We will discuss all three of those. And later, Tim Cook's fighting words, the latest in the Elon Musk Twitter saga and adding context to Warren Buffett's bet on PCs, John. Yeah, but that UBS upgrade of the tech sector is where we're going to start our feed this morning. They're bullish on IT and software spending in the second half of the year after a brutal period of valuations for tech stocks that led to PE firms taking advantage. New Bank of America data shows investors are already following suit, pivoting back into the tech trade. So is this the time to get back in, Carl, this note from UBS, interesting in that it really focuses on software quite a bit, saying software out uh, underperformed the S&P 500 index by 10% over the last six months. And, uh, you know, UBS believes software can outperform going forward uh, because of sales growth more than anything else. Yeah, they're looking at uh, a lot of things we've talked about over the last year. Labor issues, D, supporting productivity related IT spending, uh, and also assuming that rates uh, consolidate in line with their baseline. That is going to be the bigger if, maybe. Yeah, you got to be really selected, too, right? We just heard from Jeffrey Gunlock repeating that call that the NASDAQ is going to underperform and just the amount of volatility we've seen this year. More than $1 trillion from the NASDAQ 100 disappear from peak to trough every single month this year. Certainly, John and Carl, uh, earnings is going to be key, and that, that revs up this week with the big tech companies coming over the next few weeks. Yeah. Let's talk about this with our friend Kanye Machabella, uh, founding partner at Kindred Ventures. Kanye, good to have you back. Thanks for helping us start off the hour. So many cross currents, right? You got rates and the trajectory of rates. What's going to happen there? There seems to be some softness in tech at the consumer end. Uh, others argue that's going to be made up for by stronger IT spending and the enterprise. Um, how do you process all of this? First of all, it's good to see you, and uh, happy one-year anniversary on Tech Check. Uh, congratulations on a, on a great year. Uh, the most important thing to start with, I think, is inflation. Uh, so the CPI print today seems like the market has reacted well to, because I think it was a 0.5% expectation. It was only 0.3%. But these are huge numbers. Uh, we're looking at inflation at the, at the level of 8.2%, and this is across multiple categories. And so we are really moving into an unprecedented era, and all these rate hikes that you were talking about in the previous segment are really going to start to have a big impact on investors' comfort in being tied up in stocks like uh, the liquids and in privates in particular. That said, I want to put some things into context. Uh, Q1, the funding slowdown was huge. Uh, the mega round was down 30%. Q1 was down 19% from the previous quarter, just in tech. Uh, and since the top of the market, which was probably November, asset prices have dropped hugely. But uh, growth is still there. 
and the margins are still there. If you just look at the NADAC emerging cloud, growth rates since November are still north of 40%, and margins are still north of 70%. And so there still is an opportunity for growth, but you do have to be hyper-selective, as you note, about which sectors you're going to be allocating into. And we have a strong view that software, but not just software, but there's high-quality software, which mixes growth and profitability, which mixes margin, and then certain sectors where there's actually real particular interest for us. Where, where does that leave your interest on hardware, uh, given uh, potential consumer softness and obviously production issues in Asia? Hardware is interesting. And again, it's one of those things where you have to look one level deeper. And we actually have an investment in a number of hardware companies where we think that the services side of the hardware businesses are really, really interesting and important, but the supply chains are going to be challenging. And so when we're thinking about where there's going to be uh, some pressure, the supply chains are continually going to be pressured. And you see what happens in Shanghai, see what's happening in China with these lockdowns from COVID. And that's actually going to have a, an impact that's downstream from us still. We haven't yet priced that in. Uh, so that's where there's going to be some challenge. But on the positive side of the ledger, cybersecurity, fintech, vertical SaaS, uh, you still see an opportunity for trading multiples there that are going to be very healthy on the basis of the growth, which, again, has been really, really high as compared to the S&P and even as compared to the greater NASDAQ. Okay, so, Kanye, if you're looking at uh, collaboration tools, if you're looking at fintech, maybe if you're looking at multi-cloud management within software, particularly enterprise, um, wh where are you most excited? Uh, I'm most excited uh, about a couple of areas. Fintech has been amazing. In the last quarter, uh, it was actually a record M&A uh, quarter for fintech. Uh, there's just been so much consolidation, but there continues to be a huge amount of real interesting innovation that's happening. The neobank rise has been totally amazing. The intersection with crypto and so the DeFi fintech intersection is proving to be a really important story for this year. Uh, cybersecurity is another one that's really interesting, obviously uh, layering in what's happening in Europe. Uh, so there's going to be increased scrutiny uh, of companies that don't have strong cybersecurity. And, you know, in terms of vertical SaaS, we're still in a 20-year bull cycle of integrating software into the enterprise. And that continues to be a great sector. You just have to be very selective to optimize for companies who have good margin structure. Hey, Kanye, it's Deirdre. It's great to have you back with us. Um, you point out that the margins are still there, revenue growth is still there, but the fear is that the rest of this year is going to be a lot tougher, especially if we enter a recessionary environment. What do you make of what Jeff Gunlock just said before we came into Tech Check? He said that the Nasdaq's very volatile. It's had the same type of run into September of last year as it had into the latter part of 1999. Are you seeing parallels? Oh, uh, gosh. Well, 1999 was unique for a number of reasons. And uh, I don't see parallels to 1999, mostly evidenced by the fact that there's revenues and there are high, high, high revenues in the midst of growth. And so for the NASDAQ Emerging Cloud, for example, you're continuing to see revenue growth, again, at the 40, 30 percent range. And that's something that is unprecedented to some of the prior scenario environments. Uh, that said, uh, you're going to see price resets continue. Uh, it's not my view that at the late stage, uh, we've suddenly hit floor and we're going to bounce back. I think we're going to continue to see some tightening there as evidenced by the fact that there's still supply chain issues being priced in. But also last year was just really extraordinary. The most mm. important thing I think to note is that November of 2020 was probably the top uh, as compared to the last 25 years. And so we're really just coming back from what was a historic high mm -hmm. last year. And that's what's going to continue to happen. 
Right. So I guess then what is the right level, Kanye? Um, the Nasdaq 100 returned an average of nearly 40 percent annually over the last three years versus 26 percent for the S&P. Um, what do you think then? Does it continue to outperform? What about that argument that it may not be the best place to be any longer for the longer term? For the longer term, I continue to believe that it's going to be the best place, uh, but the pricing discernment is increasingly becoming the most important decision. And what you're seeing is so many of these funds, particularly those that have used a number of, that have used leverage uh, to allocate into tech, are going to have suddenly such higher bars for pricing discernment, where you had seen 20x revenue multiples, 30x forward revenue multiples across the whole sector. That's likely going to settle around closer to 10 and maybe even 10 and a half. And so that's where you're going to see a reset. And we're still moving towards that reset. I don't think we've fully hit yet. Finally, Kanye, we've spent uh, the better part of a week or so talking about Elon Musk and Twitter, trying to get behind his motivation, uh, trying to see when the stock will trade on fundamentals again. How have you thought about that whole episode? Twitter is one of the fascinating companies that is the public square. Uh, and it's also a public company. And so what happens when great leaders are talking about what's really interesting in the world is they're doing it on Twitter. And so one of the interesting things about Twitter to me is Elon Musk is a user and he's a very vocal user. He's a very active user. He's an influential user because of the combination of his follower account and his balance sheet. And so what Twitter has to navigate is figuring out how to both be the public square and to have more influence and impact on the world uh, while also being a company that has shareholders that they have to adhere to. I believe that Twitter actually reacted quite well by both inviting him onto the board because, again, he's an influential voice, but most importantly, inviting him onto the board would invite some you know, liability, fiduciary responsibility, and generally serve to perhaps rein in uh, some of the spirited behavior that he tends to employ. Uh, but, but him not being on the board is probably the best of both cases for both of them, because now he has the opportunity to be an active user, to be engaged, to influence in a more free-flowing manner, which is his style. And then Twitter can continue to have you know, shareholder control um, and board control from those people who I think are managing it, you know, in a way that it is more consistent with their long-term plans. Yeah. Well, Agrawal did say uh, he thinks this is for the best, and we will see. Kanye, thanks so much. Good to see you. Kanye Machabella. As Kanye mentioned, uh, today is the one-year anniversary of Tech Check. A lot more ahead. As always, stay with us. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Let's get a gut check on Cisco City downgrading the stock from neutral to sell. Supply chain constraints obviously hit just Cisco's shares this year, but then the Russia-Ukraine invasion also hit demand in the communications equipment market. With global defense spending skyrocketing, more money on first responder technology at home, City expects Juniper and buy-rated Arista Networks to eat some of Cisco's share, upgrading Juniper from sell to neutral. City 
also has Keysight and Motorola at a buy, expecting both to benefit from increasing demand. You see Cisco in the red buy, more than 1%, guys. Yeah, um, it, it's a tough take. Not everybody's sharing that view, though, Carl. Uh, you know, the, the sell is pretty rare. A lot of analysts uh, seem to have, you know, 45% have it rated as a buy at this point. Uh, indeed. And if you look through some of the Morgan Stanley notes this morning, their CIO survey, uh, it does show some concerns about areas in networking, John, where Morgan Stanley argues has been considered, at least by some, uh, the safe place to hide within tech for a while now. Yeah. Of course, if 45 percent have it rated as a buy, more than half do not. Uh, now, despite the pullback for big tech this year, our next guest is bullish on software for the long term, naming Microsoft one of his top picks thanks to Azure's strength and potential growth in gaming and business applications. Evercore's Kirk Matern joins us now. Kirk, good morning. Business applications? Good morning. We just got that, uh, that scare yesterday on Office 365. At least somebody is scared. Um, why not you? I think if you look at what we we're anticipating over the last couple of quarters, the idea that Office would decelerate a little bit, it doesn't come as a huge surprise. I think when you think about the durability of Microsoft's business longer term, Azure, the ability to keep upselling clients you know, from E3 to E5, even within the office suite, uh, we continue to believe this is a real durable grower. And I, I think in terms of software in general, you know, what you think about with software is some of the secular trends powering the space are, are, are going to exist you know, regardless of where rates go over the next six to 12 months, the digitization of the enterprise cloud adoption, you know, Microsoft plays into a lot of these themes and we continue to think it's a stock, you know, that's going to perform relatively well in both, you know, tough and, and tough markets as well as in more growthy uh, times for, for software. Kirk, I wonder how you think Microsoft is doing in its vertical approach uh, to some of these cloud and transformation technologies. The Nuance acquisition closed not too long ago. Uh, they and Google Cloud both seem to be trying to attack specific industry problems. And in the past, that has led to better margins in enterprise when software players are able to successfully do that. Is that working yet or how are we going to be able to tell? Yeah, I think it'll play out over a longer period of time, but I think it's the strategy makes a lot of sense, which is you know, cloud's gone from just sort of lifting and shifting workloads from on-prem to the cloud. It's it's really about solving business problems, being able to speak the language of industry, being able to help CEOs make business decisions that are based on cloud technologies where the world's going. You know, I think all the big cloud providers uh, are, are sort of shifting their go-to-market to more of a vertical context. And you know, I think that does pay off. I, I think you have seen Microsoft have strength in areas like retail and other places where it has a bit of an advantage, perhaps, versus some of the competitors. And, and I think you'll continue to see all of them push in that direction to try to find ways you know, to speak really to the line of business leaders, not just the IT leaders. Uh, Kirk, of course, Google is still a distant third in cloud, but some have suggested that because of Office 365's dominance that Google might stop trying to compete in that area and double down on cloud. Do you think that Microsoft has to worry about increased competition? Uh, well, I think on, this, on the Office productivity side, I think Microsoft's leads are uh, going to be tough to, to overcome for anybody. On it's the cloud just side. Incredibly sick. But on the cloud side, Look, there's going to be a lot of competition. I think what we've all learned over the last three to five years on the cloud side is that the pie is growing at a rate to support a number of winners. And you've seen that. While Microsoft has gained market share on a percentage basis, AWS has maintained dollar share. And so, you know, with Google, even Oracle coming into the market, 
you know, the, the good news for all of them is that the pie is growing. This is a secular trend that still has legs. So I, I don't see competition is necessarily the risk anytime soon for, for Azure. Hey, Kirk, then uh, back to Microsoft really quick. I mean, if we're in an environment where people are starting to write about a slowdown in Office, um, where does it leave sort of the M&A uh, uh, mindset and the ability to dive into new verticals, uh, Activision? I just wonder whether or not you think this is um, uh, an area where they can continue to bolt on and, and add ancillary businesses. Uh, my guess is that they're, they will sort of focus on Activision in, in the near term. It's obviously a, a very large deal. I, I think what's interesting about software, if you looked at what's happened over the last sort of three months, has been that the dichotomy between sort of the, the short-term focus of the market and the long-term focus of, say, private equity investors who have come in and have found arbitrages that have, that have sort of emerged you know, due to the sort of volatility and, and valuations. I think all the big strategic companies will obviously keep an eye on the market and look for opportunities. But, but I'd imagine that seeing a ton of strategic M&A is not exactly what we're expecting. We think it's going to be more uh, financially financial sponsor driven, at least in the near term. But Microsoft's got a lot of cash. It, you know, that optionality is one of the things I think is somewhat underappreciated with Microsoft over the long term. Kirk, how important is Activision to Microsoft that that deal get done and that it get done, you know, I don't want to say quickly because it's not going to happen quickly, but it doesn't drag out for years and years and years. I think it's important because it opens up a new narrative for Microsoft in the consumer space. I mean, if you think about what's powered Microsoft stock over the last five years, it's really been about the growth of Azure, uh, the, the growth and, and sort of recurring nature of the business, the enterprise business. I think the consumer side of Microsoft, while Xbox has done well, has been lacking. And, and I think this gives them a, a new way to discuss you know, opportunities within the consumer franchise, you know, whether it's even advertising based, you know, bringing gaming in uh, with King, you have mobile uh, that comes in through Activision. So I, I think it adds a new narrative. Is it if it gets delayed? I don't think it really changes the story over the longer term. But but I do think it's a it's a positive step forward for Microsoft from an investor perspective on more of the consumer side of the, of the business. All right. We'll see if they can get it in the net. Kirk, thank you. Kirk, McCray. thank you. A reminder to follow and subscribe to our podcast available wherever you usually download them. Tech Check is back in just a moment. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Quick reset here. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa, John Ford, and Julia Borston. Julia's got more on three bearish calls for Netflix this morning. That's coming up in a moment. But first, a news update with Christina Parts and Evelos. Hi, Christina. Hi, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Inflation driving prices up 8.5% over the last year. That's the fastest pace in 40 years, but roughly in line with forecasts. Increases in March were driven by surges in the cost of gas and food. Consumer prices for goods other than food and energy rose just three-tenths of a percent in March, so that's actually far less than expected. CarMax earnings could be a bad sign for others in the auto industry. Q4 profits were well below estimates despite soaring car prices. Sales volumes fell and expenses, including bad debt provisions, were up. 
Supermarket chain Albertson is falling about 5%. Traders are looking past strong quarterly results and focusing on full-year guidance that's on the light side. Albertson's shares are still up 9% on the year. And more than one in five Americans started a new job in the last year. And that's according to a survey from Grant Thornton. But many may not stick around. The survey also found 40% of those new employees are already looking for another job, indicating the great resignation is still going strong. Back over to you, Deirdre. Christina, thank you. Thanks. So where have all the retail investors gone? Estimates show they made up only 17 percent of stock trading activity in Q1, hitting a low since pre-pandemic. Our next guest saying she can't recall a time investors have been this puzzled about the market. Wall Street Journal reporter and CNBC contributor Gunjan Banerjee joins us now. Uh, Gunjan, good morning. It's great to have you. So where have they gone and how do you sort of square that with the Increased activity we've seen in recent months, especially in meme stocks and some of the more speculative areas of the market. That's right. I mean, it's been a fascinating trend seeing retail investing as a percentage of total stock trading activity fall to the lowest level since before the pandemic. However, analysts I was speaking to said that there did seem to be a comeback in the last few weeks of the third quarter. And that helps explain some of those huge moves that we saw in the ARK Innovation Fund, in the meme stocks, a basket of retail favorites surged around 20% within one or two weeks late in the quarter. And on top of that, a measure of -of out-of-the-money call options activity on stocks like the meme stocks, uh, Tesla, NVIDIA, Twitter, hit the highest level since early 2021. So we did see some of that activity come back into the market late in the third quarter. And it's uh, sorry, late in the first quarter. And it is a sign that some of that speculation was returning to the market in recent weeks. Right. Uh, Gunjan, at the same time, we've seen so much volatility all year in the Nasdaq. Uh, I I mentioned a stat at the beginning of the show. The Nasdaq 100 has seen more than a trillion dollars disappear from peak to trough each month. What is driving that kind of volatility? That's such a good point. And I think that goes back to the mixed signals that we're seeing across the market, where on the one hand, you have the bond market recently flashing a sign that a recession might be coming. You have transportation stocks, which are typically a bellwether for the economy, saying, hey, maybe there's a global slowdown ahead. And then, as as I mentioned, you have that intense speculation in in pockets of the market. So I think that's a sign there's volatility in everything from tech stocks to transports going on. Gunjan, how far are we off of normal now in kind of retail investor activity? So you say the lowest level since 2019, but it's been a, a, a crazy few years right? Uh, Particularly in retail. So is this returning to more of a normal share of trading activity or is it below that? I think that's the big question because there was a big shift for much of the first quarter. Yes, we saw those pockets of speculation come back late in the first quarter, but I think institutional investors too are, are keenly, you know, watching. Will these investors come back? Will they keep buying these dips? And I thought, One stat was particularly interesting. Um, For the ARK Innovation Fund, the retail buys for that fund in in March hit the second highest level on record and were well above 2021 averages. So, you know, I think people are still tracking retail investor activity for clues on the market's next direction. And it'll be really interesting to see in the second quarter, you know, do they come back into the market during this rebound that we've seen since March or, or do they kind of stay on the sidelines? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know you're in a directionless market when you've got people arguing that central banks around the world are behind the curve on inflation. At the same time, others are arguing they should start preparing support measures in case growth really slows down. I noticed the B of A fund manager survey today talked about the Fed put today around 36, 37. I know. It's, it goes back to the mixed signals that we're seeing across the market. I will say, though, with investors I've been speaking to recently, they've all been saying, yes, of course, the probability of a recession does seem to have gone up. Everyone's talking about you know, stagflation, the prospect of a recession on the horizon. Um, and eight out of 11 of the past Fed rate hiking cycles have led to a recession. But I think when you zoom out, it's incredibly difficult to time that. Right. Is that one year away? Is it later this year? Is it two years away, three years away? So investors I've been speaking to are saying, look, maybe that is a possibility, but it might be too early to take our chips off the table and try to time that. How do you time that and actually position your portfolio for that? It, it could actually cost you money in the long run. Gunjan, uh, we've talked about this in terms of the macro, but in terms of the micro, you know, we've tracked, obviously, platforms like Robinhood and Coinbase and, you know, less trading from retail investors isn't good for them, but they've become so much more involved in options and derivatives trading. Uh, what do you think that's going to mean for their results this earnings season? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean, I think we have seen a shift from kind of that ultra bullish single stock options activity that we saw for a lot of last year toward kind of those index options. So I think, you know, analysts following those companies are going to be closely tracking, you know, do retail investors come back into the market? Are they playing those small lot options on tech stocks or are they turning or are institutional investors favoring those kind of index options? Gunjan, always great to get your insights. Thank you. Some other news on this Tuesday. Starting today, thousands of Etsy sellers are planning to go on strike, protesting the company's decision to raise commission fees from 5 to 6.5. This mirrors Etsy's fee hike four years ago when they went from 3.5 to 5. One of the strike organizers, Christy Cassidy, said in an interview, quote, we're hoping to get Etsy's attention that we're fed up. Sellers are also protesting certain fees Etsy collects from its ad products. Etsy responded, quote, we are always receptive to seller feedback. And in fact, the new fee structure will enable us to increase our investments in areas outlined in the petition, including marketing, customer support and removing listings that don't meet our policies. It's not quite analogous to Starbucks and Amazon unionization, D, but where you have some um, human uh, capital at work, uh, yeah. and you're seeing a bit of a, a revolt on that front. It is interesting. It is part of the same basket. I mean, Etsy is subject to the pressures of all public companies, right? They've got to keep growing. And at their core, you know, what sellers and merchants, many of them like about the platform is it allows them to put their mom pa shops up. So how do you scale. Um, and I think, John, that's the tough thing is trying to make this transition from a niche online marketplace to maybe a more major e-commerce player. And you hear from some of the merchants that if they wanted that, they'd go to Amazon. So how do they sort of keep that core, stay true to it while growing and becoming bigger and having more tools and more exposure, more advertising as well? It's a tale as old as time. Right, 14 years ago, this was, this was eBay. The sellers were striking over the fee hikes at eBay. Now, you don't hear as many complaints about eBay, but it's the, you know, Apple's App Store and Google's App Store and the way Amazon treats third-party resale. These are all like retail stores where the company that owns the relationship with the customer and that has the scale mm -hmm. gets to set the price. Now, I don't think anybody's, 
going to be doing uh, antitrust action against Etsy in this case. Too small. But, you know, this is why the direct-to-consumer movement is what it has been. And we'll see what Stripe adds, perhaps eventually, when it comes public as well. It's been growing pretty quickly. All right. Moving on, uh, Goldman upgrading CrowdStrike this morning says the global threat environment remains elevated and that the Russia-Ukraine war is driving ever uh, greater levels of demand. That's up to a buy with a price target of 285. We're back in two. Welcome back. Apple CEO Tim Cook speaking this morning in Washington, D.C. Our Steve Kovac is there. Steve, what do you have to say? Hey, John. Yeah, it's the International Association of Privacy Professionals. That's a mouthful, but that's where Tim Cook spoke this morning. And he was really making his case for uh, the privacy issues around uh, these different regulations we're seeing in the EU and everywhere else and saying that, look, the real danger here is if we allow other software onto the iPhone, it's going to be bad for everyone. Uh, let's take a listen to what he said. Here in Washington and elsewhere, policymakers are taking steps in the name of competition that would force Apple to let apps onto iPhone that circumvent the App Store through a process called sideloading. That means data-hungry companies would be able to avoid our privacy rules and once again track our users against their will. So look, John, this is really him doing the big uh, subtweet, if you will, about the EU Digital Markets Act that is going through uh, the process over in the EU, which is going to allow alternative app stores and uh, internet downloads of apps onto the iPhone. And he's really making this kind of scary case for why that's a bad thing, why it's bad for uh, this surveillance uh, economy, he calls it, uh, and, and so forth. And this is uh, him making the case, like, it's dangerous. It's, this is dangerous thing that these regulators are, are considering. And we're not against regulation, but we are uh, for thoughtful regulation, John. He seems to have a point to me, Steve. I mean, that uh, the way this is being set up, it's competition versus privacy. He seems to be arguing if you force Apple to let other companies set up their own software kingdoms uh, on our platform, we cannot guarantee the privacy uh, and the treatment of data within those kingdoms. That's part of his argument, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. But if you want to take the other side, we're going to hear from Microsoft's Brad Smith tomorrow. And we know Microsoft now has the completely opposite view of that, John. They think hey, let's let it open. Let's have as many app stores on as many platforms as we want. Let you install the software that you want and it's going to be fine. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these two executives of these two companies are like, you know, just have these total opposite mm -hmm. views of all this regulation coming down the pike. And Steve, there's also Google, right? If you want to take the other side, uh, they yeah. do have a more open app store. Is there actual evidence that the protections aren't as good? Yeah, tons of evidence. Uh, you know, Apple and Cook himself have talked about this all the time, how the data is kind of already floating around out there that the Google Play Store, where you, most people download Android apps, even with their review process, malware can kind of sneak in. And it also happens when people download apps straight from the Internet to their Android devices. So it's, it's already a proven method that if... Where, you yeah, know, that, why does Microsoft thing. say that's, that's, then it'd be open? Yeah. 
I honestly, I think it's them just taking the opposite view of Apple and kind of having this more openness to them and attracting more developers to the platform. We know the Windows App Store D has just not taken off in the same way the Android mm -hmm. and the iOS app stores have. So this is a really good way for them to, frankly, court developers. Uh, fascinating, Steve. A lot of big issues being telegraphed uh, in real time at this conference. Appreciate it, Steve Kovac. Yeah. Meantime, we mentioned it earlier, Morgan Stanley getting cautious on some networking names today. They do downgrade HPE, NetApp, and some others predicting underperformance in the second half based on some comments from some CIOs. Uh, read why on CNBC.com slash pro. Dow holding a gain of about 240. Back in a moment. Another semiconductor IPO coming up, cloud chip designer Ampere Computing filing initial paperwork with the SEC. Oracle is a significant investor in Ampere with a stake between 20 and 50 percent of the company. Uh, that company, Ampere, is founded and led by former Intel president Renee James, who's also on Oracle's board. Ampere is competing with Intel, AMD, lots of others uh, who currently have chips inside the cloud uh, market for semiconductors and Ampere's customers include Microsoft and, of course, Oracle. No word yet on valuation for the IPO, but, of course, we'll continue to watch it, Carl. Uh, meantime, John, uh, three bearish notes today on Netflix on the street, although the stock is holding some gains. Julia Borston has more on that. Hey, Julia. That's right, Carl. Ahead of Netflix's earnings, which are after the bell a week from today, some analysts are examining the impact of Netflix suspending its operations in Russia, where it was thought to have about 1 million subscribers. Cowan trimming its price target and first quarter subscription net ad forecast to just 1.5 million in the quarter. That's a million less than Netflix guided to. Uh, the company also is slightly lowering its first quarter average revenue per user estimates. Truist slashing its price target for the stock to $409 from $470. The firm estimating that Netflix had as many as one and a half million subscribers in Russia, saying that on the upside, Netflix's second quarter slate looks solid, but they do warn about rival Disney Plus launching in 42 countries by the end of June. Meanwhile, Needham's Laura Martin out with a note this morning predicting that YouTube wins the ad-supported streaming wars. She also says that Netflix will not be a streaming war winner, quote, unless it adds sports and news content to lower customer acquisition costs, buys a deep film and TV library to hold on to subscribers longer, and enhances its bundling opportunities to lower churn. She also says that Netflix must add a cheaper ad-driven tier priced at 5 to $7 a month to remain competitive. So, John, we'll be listening very closely for any commentary and advertising in those earnings. Yeah, interesting. Julia, also, what do you know about uh, Epic Games uh, raising funds from, what is it, Sony and Lego? That's right. Sony and the company that owns Lego both putting a billion dollars into Epic. This shows these traditional entertainment companies doubling down on the metaverse. And it's a big win for Epic. This will help them better compete with the likes of Roblox and help them build out other metaverses in addition to Fortnite, which is obviously so popular. So you can imagine, John, a Lego metaverse, a kid-friendly metaverse, in addition to being able to use all of that Sony IP. <laughs> sure thing. Uh, Julia, thank you so much. One more downgrade to mention today, and that is Chegg. KeyBank thinks the downtick in growth is coming, takes the stock to sector weight. The bear case price target there, only 24 bucks. Tech Check is back in two minutes.
It's the largest ever acquisition in the cryptocurrency space. Fintech checkout company Bolt is purchasing crypto infrastructure provider Wire for $1.5 billion. The merger designed to bring access to crypto and NFTs to Bolt users. Here to discuss the deal, Bolt CEO Maju Kruvilla. Maju, it's great to have you today. So building a payments platform, it's all about signing up large customers, building out your network. How does the Wire acquisition help you do that? Yeah, thank you, Deodora. Bolt is helping merchants with one of their biggest problems, that is conversion at checkout. So around 70% of shoppers drop off right at checkout for merchants today. And that is 85% on mobile. That is almost a trillion dollar problem just in the US in one year. Bolt with our shopper accounts network, that's tens of millions of shoppers on our network today, is helping these merchants to convert their visitors into actual customers. Crypto is the future of payments. And with Bolt and Wire, we are going to bring the crypto one click to merchants and give access to a whole new customer segment. Maju, how did you do the deal? Was it all equity? I asked because Bolt was last valued at $11 billion when the private markets were a lot hotter. And since then, you've seen a competitor fast go out of business. So I wonder if you're taking advantage of that valuation price tag you received before the cool off. Yeah, we are excited about the traction we are seeing in the market. And that's largely because we are able to close some really large merchants. Uh, like uh, recently, we closed Fanatics. It was one of the fastest growing e-commerce and they are using Bolt to power all their one-click checkout across their whole portfolio. And same way we are seeing a lot of partners signing up with Bolt and recently we brought big commerce online. And just in two weeks, we are seeing hundreds of merchants taking advantage of Bolt's one-click and they can turn on Bolt under two minutes. So we are seeing a lot of traction there. Now with wire acquisition, which is done with a mix of cash and equity, um, we're seeing a great traction from the market. Now with Fast, you know, they approach the problem, which is the same problem Bolt is going after, which is a trillion dollar conversion problem for merchants. We approached it in a very different way. And uh, it seems like our decentralized approach and the most merchant friendly approach uh, seems to get a lot of traction and we are very excited about it. Uh, Maju, why does crypto matter in one click checkout? I mean, it seems on the surface of it, as sort of a field trip. Um, most people probably aren't trying to pay with crypto. So wh why is this strategically important? Well, crypto is the future of payments. Yeah, but and really, I, I don't think so. I'm not gonna pay for anything with crypto probably in the next five years. Okay, so let's look at what, uh, some numbers here. What we are finding is only 4% of users in the universe today is using crypto. But for merchants who turn on crypto on their website, they are seeing around 40% net new customers buying on their site. And even interesting, the shoppers who pay with crypto end up paying twice as much than the shoppers who are paying with credit card. So getting access to this new segment of shoppers who spend a, you know, a lot more money than everybody else is in the best interest of the merchant. The reason merchants are not going after that today it's because it's a very much high friction process. It's not easy for a merchant to turn on crypto and not easy for a shopper to buy it. With Bolt and Wire coming together, we can make crypto easily accessible for merchant, just like we make 
all the credit cards and all the alternate payment easily accessible for merchant just as a configuration. And also for shoppers, make it viable with one click, whether the shoppers, we have tens of millions of shoppers already on our network and they can all buy from any of our vault merchants with one click, whether they are using credit card, alternate payment or crypto now. Maja, I'm not sure if you heard my previous question, but it was, how did you acquire Wire? Did you use it using your equity price at a valuation of $11 billion? How are you thinking that? We've seen a number of companies sort of readjust, at least internally. How are you doing in terms of especially how it relates to retaining and finding new talent? Yeah, so we are actually very lucky and seeing the opposite from the market. With the, the traction we are able to get on the enterprise market and all the partnerships, we recently signed Adobe, um, we signed uh, Presto Shop in Europe, which is the largest shopping cart there, we signed Solidus, and with wire acquisition, and we recently closing customers, like even last week, we closed Jane.com. So all this customer traction, partner traction, and, and now being the, the biggest player in crypto for commerce, our investors are showing a lot of inbound interest. So we bought Wire with a mix of cash and equity, and Bolt is really looking at a, so, uh, even a higher valuation than what we had before. Not, we're not. You're looking anything. at a higher valuation than 11 billion. The last one. We are absolutely, and we are seeing interest for that right now. Okay, Maju, thank you very much for being with us. And a reminder to get more contacts like this online by watching our new digital show, Crypto World. That's available at CNBC.com. Carl, a rare company in the private space that is seeing a valuation yep. increase in this environment. Yeah, very interesting, uh, Dee. In the meantime, a year into Amazon's pledge to become the safest place to work on Earth, serious injuries rose more than 15%. You can read that story only on CNBC.com. We are back in a moment. We've been talking about buyouts and tech. Uh, yesterday was SailPoint and Datto. Today it's Barracuda. KKR buying the cybersecurity firm from Toma Bravo over $3.8 billion. Toma Bravo, as you know, has been very active, this time on the selling side. KKR calls the cybersecurity space, quote, highly attractive. And that price tag will attest to that, John. Yeah, private equity selleth and private equity buyeth. Uh, one more thing, and that's PC sales and Warren Buffett's investment and PC maker HPQ. Frank Holland has some data. Frank? Where there, John? HP Inc. has jumped more than 10% since Warren Buffett took a huge stake, seen by many as a bet on continued strength in the PC market. Berkshire Hathaway became the largest shareholder in HPQ just days after the company announced a deal to acquire Poly. That's a headset maker for hybrid work, among other things. HPQ also out with strong guidance on PC margin, where it gets three quarters of revenue despite ongoing supply chain challenges. However, new data from Gartner shows a 7% decline year-over-year year in global PC shipments in Q1. The U.S. down 17%, biggest decline of any region. But the comps, well, they're honestly very tough. The PC market coming off its best year in decades. HPQ also losing market share. Dell and Apple both gaining market share. Gartner says the lower shipments are largely due to fewer shipments of Chromebooks. Those are PCs with Chrome OS software. They really surged in popularity last year. Lenovo remains the global market leader, but shares still down double digits year-to-date along with Dell. Carl, back over to you. All right, pretty interesting, Frank. Thank you very much. Meantime, uh, markets had a lot thrown at it uh, today. We're holding on to some gains. Dow's up 230. The 10-year yield uh, has fallen a bit below 27 after the CPI print. And of course, tomorrow, uh, JP Morgan Delta going to get us started on uh, earnings season, which is going to take us through the next few weeks. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.